in Psalm 94. Psalm 94. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand nice and high, and a Bible will come running to you. This is an unbelievable thing, this Bible running right to you. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you have given us your word. In fact, it says in your word that all of this is God-breathed, and it's here for us to grow and live by. Lord, we need it. We live in a world that's so confusing, Lord. We're out there just in life many times, Lord, trying to live, Lord, in the shades of gray of what truth is when your word presents it all black and white. And we come here this evening to know what your will is for our life. We come here to know you and come to know you and to seek your heart out, Lord, and what your heart is for us, what and what you want our heart to be for you. And Father, I pray that you would do that work in our lives this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 94, verse 1. It says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. This is a principle that we read throughout the Bible, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Bible says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. It says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. I'm reading from Romans chapter 12. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, the thing about taking revenge ourselves is we do a really bad job of it a really bad job of taking revenge for ourselves. You know, I think of um, these, mo- these modern missiles that the Army and Navy have come up with. You know, it used to be that in warfare, warfare is always uh, terrible, but, you know, if, you, if there was a real strategic target for example, I don't know, maybe the, the center of command of some enemy and that center of command was in a city. Man, if you wanted to take them out, you also had to take out a thousand people around them with a missile. Well, today they have these crazy missiles that are, that are so technologically advanced that they can practically go down, you know, a silo in, in around the corner and, and hit people. It's just amazing. 
And when we take vengeance, when we choose to take vengeance ourselves, where we've been wronged, we make a huge mess of it. We're like one of those missiles from 40 years ago that, you know, will take out not only the person we're taking vengeance on, but everything around them and everyone around them. And that's why the Bible says, vengeance is mine. Let the Lord take care of, of, of vengeance. Verse 2 says, rise up, O judge of the earth, Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? So this is a very familiar familiar cry of the heart of the righteous when they look around and it just seems like wickedness is uh, prevailing. The thing to do is not to sort of go out and avenge yourself of the wickedness and and come uh, against it yourself the, the the solution we see in the bible is to cry out to god oh god how long how long to you avenge sometimes it's a hard thing to do to wait on the lord wait on him to take vengeance they utter speech verse 4 and speak insolent things um, all the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and inflict uh, and inflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger. They murder the fatherless. And yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. And so this is a lie of the enemy, right? And this is, all, many times this is a lie that Satan will use in your life that uh, things are sort of your life is sort of out of control and things are not happening the the way that you think that they should be happening they're not happening according to the plan that you know you had come up with and, and there's a little voice in you saying oh God he doesn't know about any of this stuff he's not in control uh, verse 7 the Lord doesn't see he doesn't understand there's no such thing as god otherwise these things would not be happening uh, in your life uh, and and so this is a very typical lie that a, a christian has to deal with and that's why it's so important that we come to the truth the truth of god's word which says so clearly that god is in control verse 8 understand you senseless among the people and you fools uh, when will you be lie wise Verse 9, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. And so try to understand here, what you have is some people going out, doing whatever they want to do. There is no standard of morality, everyone, uh, you know, I'm allowed to do what's right in my own eyes, uh, never mind what God's law may say, I'm just going to go and do what um, I want to do, and in their mind they're saying, verse 7, well, the Lord doesn't see what I'm doing, He doesn't understand what I'm doing, He doesn't even exist, and, and, and what the psalmist is saying here in verse 9, he says, come on. He who planted the ear, he who created the ear, you're telling me you don't think he hears the things that you're saying? Uh, he, uh, it goes on, he who formed the eye, uh, 
does he not see the things that you're doing? Um, and he who instructs the nations, do you think he's not going to judge what you're doing? And so uh, that's the thought here. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law that you may give him rest from the days of adversity. From the days of adversity. Let's skip down to verse 17. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. You know, we reach such a low point in our lives where we say, you know, I just can't take this anymore. I, I, I'd rather die. Or you, you just, you, your soul is so shriveled up by adversity in your life, you just think it's going to settle in silence. But here the psalmist is looking back to where the Lord had been faithful and had helped him. Again, verse 17, unless he had been my help, my soul would have soon settled in silence. Verse 18, if I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. So here this man has a history with God. When his, in the past, when he was about to so it uses the word slip here, but fall and stumble. And he's right at the point where he thought, oh, no, you know, my life is about to be completely trashed. He has this history with God where he cried out to God and the Lord held him up. Verse 18 in the verse 19 in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. So. If there are any of you that are here this evening and you, you're just thinking in your heart, man, there's just a multitude of anxiety there. There's just, they, there's so much anxiety, so many different anxieties in my life. They're crowding each other um, out. The Bible says God is the God of all comfort. Verse 19, and his comforts delight my soul. Verse 20, shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? So then again, the psalmist here is now pointing out to these sort of these other people. Abortion, an example of, of devising evil by law. And a, a nation has uh, reached a, a very low place when it, it protects Evil by law. That's where we've come to in this country. Verse 21. They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God the rock of refuge. Oh, that this would be just become the experience of every man and woman in this room where you can just cry out in your heart with praise. Verse 22, the Lord has been my defense and the, my God, the rock of refuge. He has brought me on them. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord, our God, shall cut them off. And so, uh, this the, remember what the Psalms are. They are an instruction manual on prayer and on worship. And we see in here an example of what our prayer is supposed to be like. If, we have a, if we're angry at God, let Him know. 
He'd rather have he'd rather have you letting him know than having him ignore you. And so that's what you see in this in this psalm, as in verse three of Psalm ninety-four. How long, Lord, till you let iniquity abound around me? So an instruction manual on prayer and worship. Psalm ninety-five just continues. It's, here it says, "Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the Rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms." So some say this is um, the salad psalm because it begins with "Let us, let us." Let us. Sorry, I don't do that to you very often, but I had to do that to you tonight. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. If you have never experienced this kind of thing in your life, where you've, it, just in your heart and in your soul, you, you know what it's like to, as it says in verse 1, to shout joyfully to the rock of your salvation. To come bef- into His presence, verse 2, with thanksgiving. To shout joyfully to Him with psalms. That's where the Lord wants to take you. That's where He wants to take you. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. That's who God is. He's the great king above all gods. Now, commentators believe, some believe, that this psalm, as well as the ones following it, were written at the time the second temple was established in Israel. Now, remember the first temple in the year 586 the first temple that was built by Solomon was wiped out by the Babylonians. The entire Jerusalem was burnt to the ground. And seven, there was a 70-year 70, 70 exile of all the, um, the Jews. They were carried out of the city by the Babylonians. They were taken to Babylon. And just as the prophet Jeremiah had predicted, they were e- exiled for 70 years. They came back after 70 years. The second temple was established. And some believe that when they, it says here, the Lord, you are the great king above all gods. There's a recognition here that God alone is king. Remember in the book of First Samuel where the people, they saw at the time they didn't have a king. They lived sort of in tribes in Israel. They didn't have a king. And uh, God was their king. And that's how God wanted it to be. He didn't want to entrust His children, the sheep of His pasture, to a human being. But it's, uh, it says that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, who apparently was a tall, muscular charismatic man who led the Ammonites who were a wicked people came against uh, Israel and Israel's like, wait, we want a guy like that. We want a king. We want a man to rule over us. 
And the prophet Samuel warned him, you know, after a while, and says, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, you, you can get your king, but to be sure, he's going to take your daughters to him to be his mistresses. He will take your sons uh, to fight his wars, and he will take your money to pay for his palaces. And that's just what happened. And he was a human being. And it's not what the Lord wanted, but he, sometimes God gives us what we ask for, even though it's not the best thing for us, just, just to teach us that what we want is not a good thing. Sometimes God has to teach us a lesson by giving us what we want, even though He tells us repeatedly, this is not a good thing for you. Finally, He says, okay, have it and you learn. Well, they learned and the kings of Israel, uh, eventually, they just oppressed the people. And they also led the people into idolatry and all kinds of terrible practices, which resulted in them eventually being judged by God and removed to another country. But here, they are brought back. The second temple is built, and they're saying, you're the great king above all gods. You are the king. We learned the hard way, Lord, and we don't want to have to learn this lesson again. You uh, are the great king. And you could also say it's um, an anticipatory type of verse where they're looking forward to when the king of kings, Jesus Christ, just as he said he would, returns again. Verse 4 says, in his hands are the deep places of the earth. God is in control. And his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now, worship is a heart thing, right? It's a heart thing. It proceeds from the heart. But sometimes, remember this is an instruction manual for worship, sometimes we just need to obey the word and do what it says and we need to bow down and we need to get on our knees and recognize the Lord for who He is. And sometimes when that happens, it, 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 it stirs up in our heart worship. Now, there's plenty of worship going on out there where people are kneeling down and they're bowing down and nothing's coming from their heart. It's nothing more than a religious ritual and a practice. God wants hearts of worship. But sometimes sort of kneeling and bow down is a demonstration of what is happening in the heart or... Sometimes it's just a good thing to just fall flat on your face and say, Lord, I, I don't feel like worshiping, but I want to worship. And, and, and worship will be stirred up in your heart. Verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Jesus says that every one of his children is in the palm of his hand it says that in John chapter 10 in the palm of his hand and no one will be cast out verse 7 we are the people of his pasture 
and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, who is he? He's your shepherd. He's God. He's your shepherd. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my works. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my way. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Anyone recognize these verses? I hope. It's from Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Again, who is he? He's your shepherd. We just read that in verse 7. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And it says, so when you hear the voice of a shepherd, what does a shepherd say to a sheep? The sheep starts uh, going away from the flock. And and, And the shepherd says, hey, Bill, John, Sue, Sally, Felipe, get back here. There's wolves out there. Come back. And this is saying, if you hear that voice, do not harden your hearts. And and God does the same thing with His children. Same thing with His children. He sees them straying, straying from the flock, the flock of God. And He says, you are in a bad place. And what do we do? We harden our hearts. And this says, when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the, in the rebellion. So, the Lord speaks to you. And it's a privilege of being a child of God. And when you hear the shepherd's voice, when he says, that relationship you're in, break it off. Don't harden your heart. That ministry that you're, the, 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 over there, I want you to, to join it. Don't harden your heart. That place where you know there's, you're going to go to and you're going to go down the road of drugs and alcohol or whatever, do not harden your heart. Come and join me in the morning for an hour of devotion. When you hear that voice, do not harden Your heart, it says, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me and they tried me. Though they saw my work for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation. Now, what's it talking about there? Uh, Many of you uh, may recognize it. This is referring to Exodus chapter 17 where it says that the Israelites tested God. God brought, brought them out of Egypt where they were slaves, where they were being afflicted so much that the Bible says that when they left Egypt, they had been subject to so much beating, so much hard labor. They were a nation of hunchbacks. And he, he took them through uh, the, the Red Sea miraculously, And they got to the other side and after a little while they got to this place called Rephidim and they started getting hot and thirsty and they began to what? They began to murmur. 
I wish we were back slaves in Egypt. There's no water out here. And that's what it's, that's the event it's uh, referring to here. When you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. What was the voice of God saying at the time? He was saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you every step of the way. I will be there and I will take you into the land flowing with milk and honey. But they, they heard that voice, but they hardened their hearts. And, you know, I can just tell you guys, remember from our study in Hebrews, chapter 12, God has set a race before you. Once God, once a man or woman becomes born again, once they open up their heart and they let, they ask Jesus into their heart, the Bible says that, that Jesus comes into their heart and by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, they're saved. And once you are saved, God puts a race before you, meaning he has a path, a plan for you, and there's a wonderful, exceedingly wonderful reward at the end and he promises to get you there. And it says Jesus is the author and finisher of your faith. He's going he's gonna to be the one to help you finish the race. That's the voice. When you hear the voice saying, I will help you finish the race, do not harden your heart. And that's the message here of, of Psalm 95. Psalm 95. You know, a wonderful example of someone... Uh, you know, it, 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 it said a, a Christian is either, you know, you're in one of two places. You're either murmuring or you're worshiping. God's in control. We just read that. It says uh, that in verse 4, it says, In his hands are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry ground. God's in control of your situation. So you have one of two choices. Either you can worship the Lord in your situation, no matter how trying the circumstances are, and worship the Lord, or you can murmur. There's very little in between. You just can, can murmur like, oh, this terrible place in, in my life. And, and, and the Bible says that when you're in that place, better be careful lest the root of bitterness grow up in you and defile everyone around you. Because that's what bitterness, uh, bitterness does. And, and, and so rather, the, the better thing to do when you're in that season where you have trying circumstances is do the Psalm 95 thing, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our, make, uh, Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Just recognizing who the Lord is in your life. And remember, there's only two people who, sir, who didn't murmur and uh, got into the land of promise. Everyone else died after in the 40-year period a period that the Israelites were in the wilderness. And, uh, and one of those two guys was Caleb. And Caleb, not only did he murmur in the wilderness, after he got into the promised land, he's 80 years old, uh, he came up to Joshua and said, okay, now give me my land because I've been faithful now for 40 years. And he was given the land, and the land that he was given had all kinds of enemies. In fact, it says it has the Anakim, who were the giants. So it's like, 
Come on, God, what's up with this? I've been serving you. I was one of only two people who didn't murmur in the wilderness and you give me a bunch of land with a bunch of giants in it? Is that what I get for serving the Lord? See, be careful before you take on that kind of bitter attitude. No, that's not what Caleb did. What did he do? He went and he, he went up and he kicked their tail. He defeated those... Uh, he defeated those Anakim, the giants. And then he established himself and his family as well as the, 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 the tribe. He was a chief in his tribe uh, in that land. And so uh, he was a worshiper. He was a worshiper of God. And he understood that God was his shepherd. And Jesus says, uh, in, also in John chapter 10, he says, I am the shepherd and I go before my sheep. And someone who really understands the Lord knows that the shepherd always precedes the sheep. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, I, um, I love this and you hear this and you actually hear this in songs a lot, right? This, this verse. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And the wonderful thing about uh, the Lord, He's constantly reproducing life in your life. He's constantly reproducing life in your life. You know, there's a, a phenomena out there in, in, in the United States of America called pastor burnout. Pastor burnout. And there's these uh, retreats set up for pastors who burn out and they go to these retreats and they try to get refreshed and because they've, they, they burnt out. They've been working so hard and they've been uh, so strung out and stressed out with all the needs of their congregation. They burn out and they have to leave their congregation for a while and go to a retreat center. I don't believe in any of that. I don't believe in burnout of a pastor or any other Christian. If you burn out... It means something desperately wrong happened in your walk with the Lord. Why? Because the Lord says, uh, the, the Word of God rather says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And that new song is constantly being reproduced by God in your heart. Constantly. It's a, it, it is a continual ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you are in the Word of God, in prayer, and you're with the people of God, if you're if you're surrounding yourself by by other believers in Jesus Christ, the new song will be always reproducing in your life. Now, does that mean you never get tired? No, of course it doesn't. It doesn't mean that you don't need a rest. Uh, no, it doesn't mean that. But it just doesn't mean that you reach the point where you're so burnt out. Well, I just got to get away from the body of Christ for a while to, to, to get rest. So that is just another sort of worldly concept that is seeped into uh, the church. The better thing to do if you've burnt out is to repent doing things from doing things in your own strength. Repent because that's what we do and that's what we pastors do. We do things so, so often just in our own strength. We're running around from this person to that person to this ministry and that uh, ministry and we're just doing it in our own strength. Rather than the strength of the, uh, uh, of the Lord. God reproduces a new song uh, in your heart. Even as you're following Him. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. 
proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. So you say, well, you know, I, I'm really not the singing type. You know, there are some people who uh, come in after worship and uh, just to, to catch, catch the sermon here. I can tell you if, I don't think any of you guys do that, but um, that doesn't flatter me. That concerns me. It doesn't flatter me. Because we need to be before the Lord singing. And even, even, uh, even if you don't have a good voice, the, remember, the Lord doesn't hear your voice. He hears your heart. Because that's what, that's what it is. And so, if, if, you know, if there's an issue in your life in that area, say, Lord, change me. Give me a heart that actually uh, understands what it's like to worship you in song. Verse 3, declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among the people, for the Lord is great and greatly to be pl- uh, praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. Now, when they were in Babylon, when the Jews were in Babylon, remember they had just gotten back, um, it is believed, they had, when, at the time the psalm was written, they had just gotten back from this place, Babylon, where there's idols all over the place. Remember when Paul, the Apostle Paul, went into Athens and he talked to the Oropagus and he was saying, I can see you are very religious people. In fact, everywhere I go, there's, a, there's temples to various gods. There's even a, there's even a little um, altar to the unknown god, just in case you missed one. You named, you say, hey, God out there, we don't want to offend you, so we'll put to the unknown god, and we'll make an altar to you. But they're all false gods. They're no gods. As the, the prophet Isaiah says, you know, the guy who makes idols, he gets a big log, he cuts it in half with one half, he throws it in the fire and, and warms himself. With the other half, he makes a little nose and ears and eyes and, and turns it into um, a god. There's no god at all that's just an idol. For all the gods of the people are idols. And by the way, in the United States of America, there are other idols. The idol of money, the idol of prosperity, the idol of pleasure and fortune and fame. We just, it, it, and really, we're, we're in the United States of America, we're worshiping the same thing they did in Babylon. We're just calling them different things. Verse 6, honor and majesty are before the Lord, before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. And I have found this to be true, that strength is in His sanctuary. Now, you hear, you hear people say, well, church, oh man, that's where weak people go. People who are weaklings and they, religion is a crutch and that's where they have to go. Uh, well, actually, that's not where the weaklings are. That's where you go to church and you are strengthened there. You're strengthened by the Word of God, by the people of God. It says in verse 6, strength are in his, is in His sanctuary. Verse 7, give to the Lord, O families of the people, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory to His name. Bring an offering and come into the courts. Now, there is a type of person, a type of man or woman, who they will sing and sing and sing and sing in church, but you won't see them bringing an offering into the church. 
In other words, you know, I'll give Lord a praise offering. Just don't ask me to give a money offering. Well, uh, that's a reflection of where their heart is. The Bible says that we need to give the Lord the first fruits of, of what we make. And that's an, it's an act of worship. It's not a religious thing that we're doing just because we feel obligated to do it. It's a worship thing. It says, verse 9, O worship the Lord and the beauty of His holiness. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I didn't think holiness was beautiful. Holy was something, that's not something I think is beautiful at all. I think that's kind of ugly, holiness. I thought of holiness as sort of a, you know, a a stern looking priest or preacher kind of guy hitting me over the head with a Bible. And it wasn't until I was born again that I, I learned that holiness is beautiful. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Tremble before Him. All the earth, verse 10, say, among the nation, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Verse 11, Mary Barrett did a song on this, these verses. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. And, there, and so there's this, there's this uh, throughout the Bible you do see scripture where creatures themselves, whether it's the stars, the moon, the trees or whatever, they're, refl- they're literally, they're, they're worshiping the Lord. Not that they have life in them. It's just that they're a reflection uh, of God's glory. And in that sense, they too are rejoicing uh, in a sense before the Lord, just as it says in verse 12. Verse 13 says, For He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. Psalm 97. We're just moving Uh, Right along this evening, Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round him. rather roundabout his lightnings light the world the earth sees and trembles the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the lord now in second peter we learn that when god prior to god establishing the heavens and the earth the elements are going to melt like wax just by being in the presence of the lord Verse 6 says, The heavens declare His righteousness and all the people see His glory. Verse 7 says, Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion, here 
hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. Now, in verse 7 it says, what does that mean? Worship him, all you gods. Well, I'll give you one example of, uh, uh, of that. It doesn't mean, of course, that any other gods are real. But, but in, in a sense, all these false idols are in subjection to him. Uh, for example, when the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Bible, remember, uh, we, we read in, in the book of Exodus and the book of, um, the first five books of the Bible, uh, we read about the, the Ark of the Covenant and how in the, above the mercy seat in the, uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, there was the, uh, the presence of the Lord there. There was the Shekinah glory. There was actually a glowing there that took place. Well, at one point, this Ark was uh, stolen by the Philistine army. And the place that uh, the, the, the Philistines were so uh, happy uh, that they had gotten this this ark, this this thing that represented the God of Israel, they put it in the temple of the god Dagon, who was a god. If you ever look at this god, the Philistines were a seafaring people, so this god like looked like a fish. Um, anyway, they put it in the in, in the temple of Dagon, and uh, and that was their way of sort of declaring. You see, our God is bi- Dagon is bigger than any god. So uh, the priests went in the morning after they had put it in, and here is this Dagon. He has their their sort of little idol, their statue had fallen down on the ground. Like oh no, and they went in there and they put it back up. You know, you're you gotta really wonder if you're worshiping the right God when you have to go and sort of put it back up and repair it and this type of thing. And 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 then the the next uh, morning the the same thing happened except I think the head fell off and the hands and the God was like prostrate. The, pro, the this God Dagon, this 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 piece of of some uh, or what it was stone or whatever was. Uh, broken up, but it was also prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. And they finally, the priest went in there and said, we give up, and they actually boarded up this uh, particular temple and I guess went to some other one. But, you know, th- th- that that's the sense uh, in a, a verse like this, worship him, all you gods. It doesn't mean that there's really gods. They didn't. The psalmist didn't believe that. It was just a recognition that there are no gods, and even the gods, the, the idols that are made and fashioned by men, uh, worship and are prostrate to him. Verse nine: For you, God, are you, Lord, are the Most High above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. You who love the Lord hate evil. Now, it's important that as believers in Jesus Christ that we don't get so desensitized to evil 
that we really don't care so much anymore when we see evil all around us. That is a danger living in the United States of America. Just evil is so present in so many places that even the body of Christ after a while just shrugs its shoulders and says, well, you know, it's, it's sort of like life in 2010. I'm reading from an article here. I don't know if you guys have read about this Roman Polanski guy, but this article says this, what do you call it when a middle-aged man takes a 13-year-old child to an isolated house's jacuzzi to take art photos, plies her with champagne and quaaludes, maneuvers her into a bedroom, and against her explicit, terrified objections, repeatedly forces himself into her. And the New York Times, you know, so this guy 20 years ago or something like that was actually convicted, but before sentencing he jumped bail and he went to uh, Europe and now he's in Switzerland under house arrest and they're talking about bringing him back to the United States of America. And all this long, long list of celebrities has uh, lined up and protested it and they're saying things like, you know, uh, it was consensual and it wasn't really such a bad thing. And, and these celebrities and TV producers are the very ones that probably have more influence than any other media in our society. They're pumping out movies to tens and hundreds of millions of people around the world. These people are signing petitions saying this is outrageous that you want to bring this guy back and bring him to justice. And, you know, what he really did is, oh, come on. The Bible says, we just read it, you who love the Lord hate evil. There is a time to stand up and object and call evil for what it is, evil. You know, and, and when we around us we see every form of marriage, which was we talked a lot about it this morning. Marriage is sacred; it was instituted by God, and now it's being manipulated in any kind of way. It's just so easy to to shrug our our shoulders and not hate the evil. To love the sinner, no question. We love the sinner, we hate the evil. And if it means being called a homophobe because we just say that's wrong, well then, we got to have the guts to say it. But you don't stand back and shrug our shoulders and not hate it. And, 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 and when, we do, and we, when we do speak out against it, we need to take heart in the rest of verse 10, which says, he preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. There's the sense that if we really speak out for what is wrong, wherever we are, in our neighborhood, in our cities, our government, in our workplace, in our school, that, oh no, we're going to get snuffed out 
But no, we need to take trust. We need to trust the word of God, which says he preserves the soul of his saints. Verse 11, light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Now it's using a metaphor there of seed that is sown in a field. It sprouts up. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that when you're born again, when you ask Jesus into your heart, that light is sown in you and it will spring up. Gladness is sown in you by the Holy Spirit Himself. And it too will spring up so that you know gladness. Verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. Okay.